You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, Coming Up for Air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Coming Up for Air, the podcast for families affected by addiction. This is Annie Highwater, your host, author of the book Unhooked, and my co-host, we are equal parts host, Lori McDougall. Lori has invited a guest on today, so I will let you take it away. Hi, Annie. How are you? We haven't talked in a couple of days. Okay, so I would like to introduce to our listeners um, the Michael King, Director of Outreach and Engagement for Facing Addiction. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm well, folks. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm glad to have you here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So just to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your personal journey with substance use disorder and addiction? Absolutely. Um, I'm first off, you know, today I'm very proud to say that I'm a person in long-term recovery, which for me means I haven't had a drink, a drug, or placed a bet since February 16th of 2013. So coming up on five years in recovery, I like to introduce myself that way because for me, you know, I'll talk a little bit about my own journey through an active active addiction and and having a substance use disorder, but. Uh, I try to focus more on my story after recovery uh, only because I think it's so important when we're talking about this to, to make sure people know and understand that recovery is a reality. And I'm someone who, if you'd come to me five years ago today and said that I could have the life that I have, I would have told you, you were, you were completely out of your mind that uh, there was no way that I would ever have, you know, a new career uh, a new romantic relationship, uh, to be an active and uh, an active and engaged father. These are all things that I never thought were, were possible, really, for someone like me. The biggest gift that recovery really has given, aside from all those, those things, is, you know, the gift of a reflection in the mirror that, that I can look at every day and, and feel proud of. And that's something that I certainly had never had prior to finding recovery, and it really is the, the best gift that recovery's offered. Quick qualifying, yeah, I, I started drinking at a young age. A lot of things you hear from other folks in recovery uh, certainly applied to me. Uh, one thing I've learned in recovery is that I am, I am not unique. You know, I, drinking uh, for me solved uh, every problem. You know, there's a saying in some communities that it wasn't really a problem, but it was always my answer. It made me feel social when I wasn't social, made me feel confident when I wasn't confident. Uh, when I was happy, it made good times better. And when I was down, it, it took away the bad times. Drinking was the perfect answer for me right up until it wasn't. And I actually, I, I drank young and I recognized at a pretty young age that I seemed to have a different kind of relationship with alcohol than my peers did. And I actually first took a venture into recovery when I was very young. I was 15 years old. I stayed in recovery for about five and a half years at the time. So I I didn't drink from the age of uh, 15 until just before, uh, two days before my 21st birthday when I began drinking again. But you know, while I was sober at the time, 
you know, there wasn't a recovery high school. That wasn't something that was in existence at that time. When I got to college, there wasn't a collegiate recovery program. And in turn, you know, I'm someone who felt very alone. I was the kid at the kegger drinking a Coke. And that's probably not the healthiest environment for a young person trying to find and sustain recovery to be in. And in turn, I, I really, I didn't allow myself to enjoy any of the benefits that come along with recovery really at the time. And I began drinking again two days before my 21st birthday. For quite a while, I never was someone who drank moderately. That was not my, my history with alcohol. But I also, you know, I wasn't someone who, I wasn't a, a party goer. That wasn't really my scene. I graduated. I was a good student in college. I began a career in the political arena, which is what I wanted. And for quite some time, despite drinking more and more and more, on paper, my life was fantastic. And I think I, I point that out, that it was fantastic on paper. It certainly wasn't the reality. But I had begun a career. I began climbing through that career. Met a woman, got married, had a kid, owned a house. And I say all that because so often the uh, misconception that I think folks have of those who are suffering with a substance use disorder is homeless folks under bridges with paper bags or folks from you know poor inner city neighborhoods. And I was born and raised in the suburbs of New York. I'm a college educated white male and with who had a successful career, was respected and trusted in that career career, rose up to some pretty wonderful opportunities in that career. Unfortunately for me, my addiction began to catch up with me. Drinking led to, you know, the things that we hear from, from countless stories, lots of dishonesty, doing everything I possibly could to get the fix that I needed. And along the way, I actually discovered another, uh, something that turned into another, uh, addiction on my end, which was gambling. And the cocktail, if you will, between drinking and gambling really led to my demise. And I had my dream job. I uh, was married with a, a wonderful child with a second one on the way, but I just couldn't stop drinking. And, and by the end, I, I was what most people would describe as a maintenance drinker. I wasn't, I wasn't a partier. I woke up and I drank all day, every day. And I think a lot of folks didn't even realize how much I was drinking at the time. I went out of my way to hide it, got a DUI, hid the DUI. Uh, lied about it to everybody. But unfortunately, what I also began to do during this time was I actually began taking money from my employer. Lo and behold, after managing the state Senate Democratic Caucus here in Washington State, we lost a, a race that uh, would have maintained a majority in our, in our state Senate. When I'd been taking large amounts of money at the time to feed my, my alcohol and gambling addictions, obviously this all kind of came to a crashing bottom when uh, I had no nothing left of my own. I was completely emotionally bankrupt. Uh, there was nothing left really to take. And I, I came crashing down and I just decided, I'd, I realized that I had nowhere else to go. And so I turned to family members who are also in recovery. There's a long line of addiction in my family, but fortunately I have family members who have found and sustained long-term recovery. I turned to them and I had to face the music for the things I'd been doing. I went into an inpatient treatment center, spent 28 days there. On the third day of my stay in a treatment center, I picked up a copy of the Seattle Times. I live here in Seattle. And uh, the front page read Senate Democratic Executive Under Investigation. You know, I, I'd known that I had this big 
mess that I'd created that I was going to have to face the consequences of the things that I'd done. In retrospect, it was, and this is something that I, I think people in recovery will understand. In retrospect, it was all such a huge blessing because uh, <laughs> while I was going through and figuring out that legal situation and got out of treatment, got a job bussing tables in a restaurant. So I went from managing the state Senate Democratic Caucus to bussing tables in a restaurant. But uh, what it really allowed me to do was to focus on my recovery. And for the first nine months that I was sober, I took a lot of suggestions, didn't really worry about rebuilding careers or everything, but I just made recovery the top priority in my life. At nine months into recovery, I had to uh, go face the music for the things I'd done. And I, I served a very small amount of time in, uh, in the criminal justice system here in Washington State. I, I did eight months total, a lot of which was actually in work release. You know, it allowed for a recovery foundation to be kind of set in my life. And after coming out of my time incarcerated, about a year and a half into recovery, I started thinking, you know, I wonder if there's some way to actually take my professional background in politics and organizing and throw it at recovery. And I had no idea that there was any kind of a movement going on around the country. I started trying to do research and had a few coffees with old friends here, seeing what I could do. And then in one of those strange confluences of events, I'm, I, I don't like to use the word coincidences, but three people in the same day happened to recommend in three different mo- mediums. Uh, have you ever seen the film, The Anonymous People? Yes. Yes. I have. Danny, have you? Um, no, but I'm really familiar with yeah, it. I need to watch amazing. it though. Right. You do need, yeah, I, I, would, I would strongly suggest you watch it. And three people in the same day made this recommendation to me. I'd never heard of this movie before. I, it happened to be on Netflix and I went, got home one night. I was living in, a, in an Oxford house, a sober living house, and sat down to watch it. It, it changed my life. Uh, it kind of showed there was this world out there and I just wanted to be part of it. So I I put my old organizing hat on and and figured out how to get in touch with the creator of that film, a gentleman named Greg Williams. Greg was just in the beginning stages of starting to plan the big benefit concert launch event for a new national nonprofit called Facing Addiction. I told him my story and we connected and, you know, one thing led to another. And the next thing I knew, I left the restaurant busing tables and I was helping to organize this benefit concert to launch this new national nonprofit. After doing that, I, I came on as the director of outreach and engagement. And what makes Facing Addiction so special to me personally is it, it gave me an opportunity to merge the, really the, the two biggest passions other than fatherhood. I got to give a shout out to my kids. Other than fatherhood, the two biggest passions in my life, which are organizing constituencies, empowering individuals and recovery. And that's what it is. It's bringing those two things together and doing so by unifying all of the different perspectives, experiences, both personal and professional, behind a common agenda to address this problem. So with Facing Addiction, we're working with not just those in recovery, but affected family members, prevention professionals, treatment providers, public health organizations, criminal justice efforts, and more to stand behind a unified agenda that tries to tackle this problem in in a comprehensive way. So that's a little bit about kind of my story and segueing into facing addiction and the work we're doing. Before we go on, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. Many ask us questions we end up addressing right on the podcast. Members can also request topics they would like for us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. You mentioned something that is something that I'd never heard of before early on in your story. And you said something about when you were first in recovery from the age of like 15 to 21, you didn't allow yourself 
to actually enjoy recovery. Can you elaborate? It just kind of got me thinking about how I wonder how how much of that pays into a lot of people relapsing when we're talking about recovery, that not allowing yourself to enjoy benefits of recovery, I guess. Well, I think a big part, uh, and I think it's important to emphasize that everybody has their own experience. One size does not fit all. There aren't two recovery stories that are exactly alike. We all have our own paths to get where we are, so to speak. But I think for me, you know, number one, you know, I wasn't really fully, I knew I was a lonely, sad kid. I don't know how really fully ready I was admit that I, that I had a problem with alcohol. I think recovery was, uh, and I think those early days of recovery for me were an attempt to find something to read, to grab hold, uh, you know, grab hold to just in life in general. I will say there was also at that time, and thankfully this is changing. It's not changing, I think, at the rate that many of us would like to see. But there also wasn't really a, a recovery support network, a recovery support services network out there for young people. Like I said, there was no such thing as a recovery high school. There was no you know, collegiate recovery program when I made my way into college. There really wasn't any kind of a support system out there to help our young folks. And, and that's why I, one of my favorite things to do with Facing Addiction when I get to work with our collegiate recovery program partners or with our recovery high school partners and with the the professionals who are working so hard to expand these incredibly successful and incredibly impactful programs. It's it's so inspirational to me because I often think, you know, I, I wonder, and I don't say this, this sounds a little bit morose and I certainly don't mean it that way, but I do wonder what my experience as a young person in recovery might have been at the time had those services been in place. And I think that, you know, when you meet that 19, 20, 21, 22 year old who's been in recovery for three and four years and is loving it and and seeing all the joys that come with a recovered life, largely because there's this beautiful universe for them, this beautiful support network of like-minded individuals, but also older folks who are there to support and encourage these folks. I'll also say one added dimension to my own experience was the stigma. I, I think that we talk a lot about the stigma that shrouds addiction. Well, I think sometimes we kind of can lay that stigma upon ourselves, especially when we're still in active addiction. Nobody wants to reach out and ask for help. When I was in my, my 20s and I was drinking again and I was climbing through my career in politics, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to talk to anybody about the fact that maybe my drinking was you know, outside of control because I didn't want to have, what impact would that have on my career? What impact would that have on my family? Now, the coincidence obviously ends up being that the things I and so many others have done in active addiction have a far greater impact. But I would argue that's the number one people don't reach out and ask for help. It's the number one reason why nine out of 10 people in need of treatment don't get it because nobody wants to stand up and say they have this problem because they, they worry about what's going to happen to them. Right. And I feel, I feel like that's, that's like a whole cycle that just one thing feeds into another, which feeds into another, which really keeps people in active addiction. And what, and what I mean by that is like, if you're an alcoholic or you're, you know, you're struggling with alcohol as, as your substance, when you're working or one, you don't want to admit that you have a problem with the substance. And then you have pressure outside all the time to drink. And you don't have other adults that are saying to you, oh, I, I think you have a drinking problem. And you're hiding it. it it's, just, it's just like this cycle of constant affirmation to you that you're doing the right thing, that you should continue to drink, that just hold it together and everything is going to be just fine. And also there's this whole thing about 
asking for help in general. People sure. don't want to ask for help with other diseases, never mind substance use disorder. Sure. Right? Sure. So I see that. I see that all the time. And I think also I see a lot of people question other people whether they do have a substance use problem. Well, he held a job for this long and he does a really sure. good job at it. Well, I think in, in, my, in my own personal experience, I mean, I would often say to myself through those years, especially in my, you know, really for me, the last two to three years was a, a pretty rapid decline and just the amount of alcohol I was putting in my system. But I would constantly think to myself, people alcoholics, people with an alcohol use disorder, they don't own homes. They're not married. They don't have successful careers. They're not, they don't own cars. And, you know, they, so I used to always think, you know, someone with a, in a, a problem with addiction, they don't look like me. So that stigma was certainly rich and, and alive and well within myself, I think. So I think that, you know, one of the reasons why I always point out that, you know, I'm, I'm a college educated white male, I'm the face of addiction is because we just so often, we have preconceived notions of what someone with a substance use disorder looks like. We all do. And I think it's really important for folks from all walks of life to stand up and share that recovery story because that's how we can start to cut through. You know, PBS did a poll in October, PBS NewsHour. And I, for those who work with me, I feel terrible because I've been like a broken record about this for the last three months. But in this poll, 58% of those who responded said they did not believe addiction was a national emergency. <laughs> they said it, it was a problem. They acknowledged that there was a problem, but not the level of an emergency. Well, think about it. One in three families is directly impacted. Numbers don't perfectly correlate, but it's about the other two thirds who aren't directly impacted, who don't really uh, have not yet come around to the idea that this is an emergency, a public health crisis that we are dealing with in this country that's costing us billions upon billions of dollars a year. So I think it's important for those of us from all walks of life to come out and share openly about our recovery because that's how we start to get to that 58%. Right. I want to speak on really quick. I like how you said that recovery is not one size fits all. I had just heard recently when it comes to recovery, the recovery method that work that the recovery method that's best is the one that works. And really it's the one that somebody chooses. And then I kind of, I found it interesting. I have a son, Lori and I both have sons in recovery. My son's five years in recovery from a, a painkiller uh, addiction and doing well. He was raised in private school. It happened from football. He's everybody's best friend. The kid next door carries your trash, you know, just well-liked, well-loved. He did well for himself. My point was, when you talked about how you thought, uh, I'm going to go a little deep on this with you, that people that are struggling with an addiction or alcoholism don't look like me. Mm -hmm. But then you had also said, someone like me couldn't have the life I have today. I think that dual back and forth struggle of, I don't look like I'm struggling. I'm not struggling. I have a facade and an appearance all the way over to this side of, I don't deserve recovery. I can't get better. I'll never have a healthy life. Is Absolutely. that not some internal turmoil? Oh, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, for me, for years, it was that battle between I have this from running statewide political campaigns to having a consulting business to running a, a legislative caucus, the political side, the campaign side of things. You know, this on paper, this is the perfect life. This is what I've always wanted. And yet, 
there's some deep seated problems and issues yeah. going on here that al- that for me, I mean, it was self-medication. I mean, alcohol was the only thing for me that made me feel normal. It's almost a running from judgment. And that I think keeps you from seeking the treatment and then just dropping your guard. And I think it's that judgment and it's the internal judgment. And I, it goes back and forth from, you know, I've got it all together to I don't deserve anything. I, I sure. think that's my son has presented that struggle before many times. And there was nothing I could do to convince him that he had worked and value and talent and time. I couldn't convince him. His eyes had to be open to that. And I think it's interesting. I've heard a lot of people in recovery say they had that dual struggle. Yeah, it was certainly one for me. And I think that one of the challenges, or I'll rephrase that, you know, in, in to walk through recovery, one thing too, you know, that I sort of benefited from when it came from, when it comes to sort of being able to, to speak out as an advocate and an organizer. I always laugh when I hear kind of the Tom Coderes and the Patrick Kennedys, you know, big players in this, in this movement nationally, you know, like them, my story was very public, played out in the newspaper. So anonymity was not ever really a, a concern <laughs> of mine when it comes to being an advocate because I never had it. So, I think you probably uh, hit a threshold when you go through that, which brings me to a point as, as well. You went through somewhat of a public shaming being in the papers and we'd had another guest on prior who was a uh, journalist, I believe a CNN reporter who was on film peeing on the Apple store and it went viral and his wife wrote a book and a country song and she was on Dr. Drew and as he's early in treatment, he's being publicly nationally shamed. And what kind of a struggle was that for you to not only try to get sober, but you're facing judgment, you're fighting judgment, and here you are publicly judged. I mean, that's, you hit a threshold, I think. Sometimes people called to a high level of doing this work, hit a threat, a really big threshold because you don't really have to get bothered anymore. Uh, You know, it sounds funny. I I don't want to, I would never say that, you know, going through that experience and it's not particularly fun to, you know, see certain headlines about yourself or be on the the evening news with your mugshot. Obviously, that's hardly any, a fun experience. And and I think that, you know, what it meant for my family and everything else, I think it causes pain there that, that frankly, I I don't even think I could, I think it would be disrespectful of me to pretend that I understand that. That being said, to some extent, like I've said today, I find a degree of gratitude in it only because, you know, it's sort of what made me feel very comfortable to come out and and talk openly now about my my experience. And I think to some extent, it also made me feel somewhat obligated only in that, you know, if the story ended, I had the opportunity uh, about a year, maybe a little over a year ago now, actually to sit down. Actually, I was coming back from a facing addiction event that we did at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia in 2016. And I sat down on the airplane. I looked over at the gentleman who sat down next to me and he was local TV reporter here in Seattle who had covered my bottom, had covered my, my case, my legal case at the time and the political ramifications. And I sat down and I introduced myself to him and we struck up a, a very pleasant conversation. His, you know, he hadn't, his reporting hadn't been in any way unfair at the time. A couple months later, he emailed me and wanted to do kind of a follow-up story. And so I, I was very appreciative of having that opportunity because, again, if we end the stories that we tell by just talking about the mess that addiction creates, we're doing a disservice to everybody out there who is looking for help. So for me to just personally leave my story at, I stole some money and I had to go get locked up for it, I think is doing a disservice to everybody out there who, who wants help. I want to shout from the rooftops that, you know, guess what? We create 
mountains of mess and we can work through them and, uh, you know, make amends for those things that we've done wrong and we've harmed. And then we have the ability to take that experience and try to use it to help other people whenever possible. And that's something that's very personal to me. I'm grateful beyond words to, you know, facing addiction and, and other organizations that do this work too, to let people like me kind of have that second shot. At, and frankly, a shot that's way more fulfilling in so many different ways. Yeah, because that's what it led you to. It, it, like you said, in a way, it's a gift. We try not to judge things really as so much good or bad anymore. They just kind of are and what we do with it. And my son has come to me many times that he's embarrassed for something he did to hit the family or caused pain. And I always say, but, you know, he's like, I'm sorry, I was so troubled. But if you weren't troubled, it wouldn't have led. I, I, let, I went through a great period of healing and growth and met some great people that I never wouldn't be in my life now if you hadn't been troubled. And if we're stuck in the middle of the story, like you said, that kind of does a disservice. And good God knows when the family's in the middle of that story, we're not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. We are just suffering through that midnight hour. But when you bring it all the way through, it is a huge disservice to not share it to others who are just entering in early on or maybe stuck in the midst of that darkness and seeing no possible hope. I I was also going to say, you know, that I find this hugely important what we're talking about because I see so many posts on like social network and so many people that are outside of understanding how the stigma involved with substance use disorder and addiction works. I often think when I see these really awful negative comments being made and these stigmatizing comments being made, but what about the people in recovery? If we didn't give them a chance, a second, a third, a fourth a 20th chance they wouldn't be where they are and can we just throw those people away we can't and we have to offer everyone we have to keep giving them the opportunity to continue to better themselves and i think what you're doing and what you know so many other people are doing ryan hampton uh, Greg Williams, everybody what they're doing by putting themselves out there on the line and showing that Yes, there is recovery, and I might make a mistake. I might make a mistake again, but I can recover is just hopeful and helpful and what people need to focus on. Well, I think that's very kind of you to say, and something that you both have hit on in the last couple things that I just want to point out too is, you know, one place, as I mentioned, we're facing addiction is unique in this space, is that our, our mission is really to unify everybody who's impacted by this. So that includes, like I said, people in recovery. Uh, And it also includes families. People say addiction is a family disease. It's a unique illness in that it has such a huge impact on the loved ones of of the person who's suffering. And the loved ones suffer so much themselves. And and, in my experience, organizing different communities uh, for facing addiction, the network nationally of family members, both who have children who have found recovery or loved ones that have found recovery, or, you know, sadly, the, the far too fast growing constituency of families who have lost loved ones are such impactful and powerful voices. I, I can't even start to express the, the bravery. And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, 
the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998. Just quickly, I wanted to ask you too, do you have a message for families of someone that's struggling with substance use disorder? I mean, that's that's basically, I don't know if you've gone online and you looked at the Allies and Recovery website. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but really, I think it's all about changing the narrative for families and, and relatives that are struggling with a loved one with substance use disorder, because so many times it's been a very hopeless message that gets sent or a very conflicting message, right? Right. People will say, oh, you're powerless. Oh, you have no control. Oh, let it go. Right. And then they'll say, but there's always hope. And I'm like, well, you just gave me an incredibly hopeless message. And now you want me to be hopeful. And my thing is, is we've got to change that. We've got to change it to a very, you know, to a more hopeful message at the start. And it's about empowering and training families in order to deal with this. So my thing is, do you, Michael King, do you have a message for families and loved ones that you'd like to kind of get out there? I would say my personal message, and I emphasize it's my, my personal message coming from a guy in recovery, is just to remember that your loved one, whether it's your spouse or your child, that they're not a bad person who needs to get good. They're a sick person who needs to get well. I think that that's the, the biggest message. And I think it can be so easily forgotten because those of us in active addiction, we do engage in some behaviors that you know, I think it can be an easy thing to forget. So that's step number one. Step number two, they're worth it and recovery can be a reality for them. Recover, there's not a person out there for whom recovery is not a possibility. What I would tell loved ones is to be there to support and to read up and understand as much as you possibly can about an illness that is really can be incredibly complicated to try to understand. The third thing, and this is something that Facing Addiction's other co-founder, Jim Hood, who along with Greg co-founded our organization, Jim is a family member who lost a loved one. So he comes at this from that perspective of a a grieving father. And he's a terrific guy with a, a heck of a vision. And the way that he describes the challenge that his family went through prior to the loss of his son, Austin, was this feeling that there just wasn't a roadmap. What am I supposed to do? And that's something that facing addiction is working really hard to try to fix. And we've actually created something that I I hope everybody who listens to this will take a few minutes to go visit. If you go to facingaddiction.org, under resources, you'll see something called the Addiction Resource Hub. And this is an attempt to build a one-stop shop of all the resources that are out there across the country to help individuals who are looking for help. So it includes everything from treatment facilities to prevention programming to recovery supports. If you have a loved one in early recovery to family supports, a lot of these sort of databases have been out there historically, but we've been trying to get it all into one spot. So you plug in your zip code and all of those resources come at you. Now it is continuing to use as asset mapping uh, technology and it's continuing to grow. As you can imagine, pulling all those resources resources into one spot is a heck of a project. So 
it is still growing and individuals can actually go on themselves and add resources to it as well. So if you go on, you don't see something and I would, everybody listening, go on, plug in your zip code. You might not see much listed for your community yet as this is still growing. Take a little bit of time. We would be very grateful and add more resources to it because for every resource you add, you could be saving a life. And I would encourage every family member to get online and check that out because that's really, we want to be able to help create that roadmap. I know, know my child is a problem. I know I I can go to facing addiction and, and get a sense of what those resources are. And, and last, and I'll end with this, you know, we have a coalition of partnering organizations of which allies in, in recovery. We're very proud to have you all as a member over 760 members from across the country. We call it the action network. And at least once or twice a week, if not more, I get an email, somebody emails our info at facingaddiction.org email. I'm looking for help for my son or I need help. And I, I get the opportunity to respond to those folks when they write to us. And what I often do is I will connect them. Just this morning, I connected someone in, I think it was in Arizona, to who was looking for help. I connected them with some resources with all of our partners we have in that state. And I was able to send their story on to them, local organizations, partners on the ground to say, this person reached out, they're looking for help. Can any of you reach out to this person? And of course, people do every time. So there's no more, for all the great things that Facing Addiction is doing, there's no more gratifying thing I get to do than to send that note off to all these partners connecting someone in need of help with resources. That's amazing. That is what families need. That is absolutely wonderful. Right. It's actually really good to know too, because I get all sorts of emails and phone calls in the middle of the night. I have my various sources, but I actually get phone calls from across the country. And sometimes I have no idea you know, and I'm like reaching out to people from all over the country saying, please help me, please help me. But now I guess I'm going to consider you a really good resource. Yeah, you know, no, I'll be reaching do. out. Please do. Absolutely. There's no, I mean, on a personal level, there's just no greater joy in the work I do than when I get to make that connection. So please, and that's for everybody listening too. Don't ever yeah. hesitate to, to mking at facingaddiction.org. I'm probably working far more than uh, a lot of folks do, but you know, it's, this is where we're at. I mean, there's too many people suffering and they need help and they don't, they don't even know where to turn. Google, what do I do with an addiction? And the last yeah. thing you really want to do is follow those commercials on television and it, because you don't know what you're getting when you make those phone calls, Absolutely. right? You really want Absolutely. to get an informed resource, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Annie, I have like one or two more questions. Do you have anything else that you need to ask Michael or want to ask Michael? Sure. I'd like to know what your goals are for 2018 or even for the next five years, personal goals and facing addiction and public goals. I would love to know that. Well, I'll stick to facing addiction for right now. But I, you know, I facing addiction, we have a lot of work we want to do moving into 2018. In 2016, we released an agenda after we had launched and there are still some action steps in that agenda that we're working on just this week. I, I have a, a sit down. We're working on developing what will be sort of a, a proposal for what medical schools should be doing in terms of an ideal curriculum around this issue. Too many medical schools do not pay enough attention. Uh, you know, doctors, you ask the doctors that we have that are just coming out of medical school. It is shocking given the gravity of the problem that we have, the lack of education that so many of them receive on how to identify, prevent, and treat substance use disorder. So that's one project we continue to work on. 
Uh, we're going to be hosting a forum in DC, hopefully in March, the date isn't set 100% yet, focused on employment challenges that a lot of folks in early recovery have and different resources and what we can do to help folks in early recovery find employment. Uh, we, we hosted a similar forum last year focused on housing. The big project that I'll be working on personally is, so we worked with, on something called the Pilot Community Project this year. And what we did was we worked with 15, and we continue to work with 15 communities around the country that we selected as pilot programs trying to bring a community organizing driven framework into these communities as to how to tackle this problem. How do we get through to that 58% who don't see this as an emergency and get them plugged into to the policy changes that need to happen. Our goal is to try to train a thousand folks in community organizing techniques around the country this year. We trained uh, just over 500 last year in our pilot communities, and we want to do over a thousand this year. So hopefully I will be traveling around this year hosting this community organizing training, uh, which is a real passion of mine. There's no better merging of my two biggest passions than doing this training. So we're going to be looking to do that. We have a number of grassroots calls to action that are currently live and out there around the, the report that came out from the President's Commission. Uh, the President's Commission on this crisis actually has a tremendous set of recommendations. Seeing them through to fruition is an entirely different ball of wax, and we're trying to motivate the grassroots. So what I would encourage you all to do, oh, and finally, we have an ongoing project too around treatment care. Uh, this is something that was alluded to a moment ago. There are some wonderful players in the treatment industry who have helped countless lives, and there's also some bad apples out there. And we would like to, and we're working with a lot of partners in that area to develop really what amounts to a gold standard of care. What does addiction treatment care need to look like? These are just a few of the projects, but what I would encourage anybody listening is go to facingaddiction.org, sign up to get our updates and explore our site. If you go under we have a, a bar on there called Take Action, and you'll see any number of simple steps. I'd encourage if you're an organization and you're not part of our action network, join the action network. If you're an individual who wants to take a, a simple weekly step every week, join what we call our activist program, which is every week I send out a simple grassroots call to action. Just this morning, I sent one out asking folks to sign a petition around some of the president's commission recommendations. So there are so many things you can do. Some of them are big, heavy lifts. Some of them are easy lifts, but go to facingaddiction.org and, and join the movement, get involved, because that's, what, that's how we're going to make a change. It's, it's up to all of us to do it. It's up to us. It's funny because you just covered almost all of my questions that I had for you um, in conclusion. But I'd, I'd also like to ask you, is there anything in the, in the future planned like the Unite to Face Addiction 2015 <laughs> rally that you had, which I attended, by the way. It was Wonderful. Yep. incredible, incredible, incredible. The, but. Birth, the day we were born. The, uh, the short answer to your question is, is there something planned at the moment on the horizon? No. The longer answer is, would we like to do something like that once again? Absolutely. As one can imagine, it's quite an undertaking. So okay. we're not quite there yet, but stay tuned. You know, we okay. certainly hope in the future to do something like it again. Absolutely. Okay. And just one last comment I'd like to make. I know that you're out and you're speaking uh, across the country. Is there a way, do you have a calendar set up anywhere where people can kind of watch you and follow you and maybe kind of go and see you if you're ever in their area? Is there, is there anywhere that they can go to kind of get that information? 
Well, I try to, I, you know, I use my own social media pages, which I, I try to accept. You know, if anybody, you can find me on, on Facebook and Twitter and everything. And, and I try to let folks know when I'm going to be around and I try to promote it all through facing addiction. Cause you know, it's really, it's not about me. It's about the movement, right? It's about the bigger cause. So we try to always let folks know when we're going to be in your communities doing a training or we happen to be at any particular events. I like friends. So come friend me. I, wanna, I, I enjoy more friends. So. Okay. Will do any plans to come to class? Columbus, Ohio? Well, we have a very, we have a terrific partner, the Ohio Citizen Advocates Group there, run by an amazing young woman named Sarah Thompson, and we're mm-hmm. very close friends, and uh, stay tuned. I, I think Columbus, Ohio might actually be a, a destination at some point this year. I can't, I'm not promising, but uh, it's, it's one that's on my mind, I'll put it that way. What about Mass or Rhode Island? Well, I have family back in Massachusetts, so I always have a reason to be there anyway. I was in Fitchburg, actually, in Central Mass and Gardner earlier, uh, late last year. Again, stay tuned. I I, I can't say yet. Nothing on the calendar yet. I think it'll be a busy year of traveling for me. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say no to anything. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on our podcast today. Everything you had to share with us, uh, just a a wealth of information, incredible story, and just thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. You two have a a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks so much. Please keep spreading hope. (laughs) Thank you all. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Annie, I guess, guess that's it for today, and I guess I'll see you at our next recording. Yep, that's right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.